Welcome to Hit It, the Water Skier Magazine podcast, presented by USA Water Ski and Wake Sports, where we catch up each month with current stars, rising stars, and legends from the past from USA Water Ski and Wake Sports and its nine sport discipline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Central Florida, the water ski capital of the world. I'm your host, Tyler Boyd. Welcome back, everyone, to the Hitted Podcast. It's 2023, Season 2, and we have a big, big lineup here for you this season. We start things off with a legend, an athlete who broke the men's world slalom record at just 13 years of age. He went on the following year when he was just 14 to win the Masters for the first time. That would total seven Masters titles in his career, coupled with seven world records along his journey. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2008. You might have guessed it by now. We sit down with Chris LaPointe. Super exciting to catch up with Chris. We talk about his ski career, past, present, and future. Really looking forward to seeing Chris back out on the water this year in 2023. But we get super technical about skis and techniques and really get into the detail and drill into what matters out there on the slalom course. If you're into slalom skiing, you're not going to want to miss this episode. So sit back and enjoy this episode with Chris LaPointe. Well, welcome back into the Hit It podcast. This is going to be an exciting one. I have none other than Chris LaPointe joining me here in the virtual studio. What's going on, Chris? Hey, excited to be here. Hey, we're excited to have you. And we're going to talk a lot about slalom skiing today and a lot of technical pieces of slalom skiing but first i really want to recap your career um i you know i've had the opportunity this next year will be 13 years to announce the masters water ski tournament uh but all the years i've been doing it it's been the junior masters the real big start to your career was your win when there was no junior masters and it was just the regular masters and i believe you were 14 years of age is that right yeah, I think uh, I think that's true. Nineteen sixty-seven, and I'd uh, I tied the record in the the world record the year before in sixty-six, uh, and that got me the back then. It was kind of an invitation situation rather than straight uh, based off of some world standings list because we didn't have it anyway. So I got in and I was able to win, and that was uh, got me going. It was it was the Super exciting, you know, it was a different era when we had ABC Wild World of Sports, which sounds crazy, but that's that was a telecast and uh it was it was uh it was an amazing uh, amazing weekend or week. It was a three day tournament back then for a fourteen year old. Yeah, that's crazy. I was just doing the math. I had to pull that up on my phone. That was fifty five years ago. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> And um, yeah. it's like you're still going strong. I know that you've been battling through some injuries in the last years, but uh, talking to you the other day, you, you seem hopeful that you're going to be back on the water soon. Yeah, I hope so. It's been a, a tough five years, and uh, mainly wear and tear. Uh, you start to wonder. <laughs> uh, you get, as they say, getting sick and tired of being sick and tired. But it, uh, I think I'm past it. The the last thing I had was. Uh, I had elbow and wrist surgery. I had some nerve pinching going on. Uh, I think I'll be back in the water by January first. I'm 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 looking forward to it. 
Well, good. Always that cooler water makes the, you know, the body respond a little better. It's like an ice bath there in January. Yeah. Um, You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because the progression of your career, you've seen everything. I mean, everything when it comes to technology. And as we segue into more talking about skis, the progression of wood skis to honeycomb to fiberglass to carbon fiber going back to 1967 right? This is still a time period in which um, wood skis are very prominent. And that may be the only thing on the scene and where uh, there are folks out there designing their own wood skis in the garage, maybe even competing uh, on them at the Masters. Tell us a, bl- a little bit about that time frame, because that was such a different period of time. Yeah, no, in 67, it was entirely wood skis. Uh, the first Fiberglass skis, as I recall, were about uh, 71 or so. Uh, and I was riding a Maharaja, uh, which was obviously a ski that's actually they're still in business building skis out here in the West Coast. And in hindsight, it wasn't a particularly good ski, uh, but, <laughs> you know, it was it was state of the art at the time, you know, uh, and, and we didn't. We we were riding those skis because they were definitely the dominant ski on the West Coast. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was definitely a different time. The skis didn't stay in the water very well. They were, that particular ski was fast because it was wide and particularly back foot back very wide and not much rocker, which is part of the reason why it didn't stay in the water very well. Uh, but making a turn, keeping it in the water, those were the challenges, but it was the same kind of equipment that everybody had, you know, uh, and, uh, it was a different era, it's a different era, and the, the performance of show, you know, the scores were nowhere near anything what they're like now. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too. You think about the skis, and one of the things that gets left out of the conversations, the bindings of that era. I, I've talked to jumpers during that era that were literally wearing, like, tube socks to make their bindings tighter as they came into a ramp. And I'm thinking, like, what in the world? You know, jumping's already dangerous, and then you think about that. Uh, what was the setup? What did you have a rear kicker or two double boots? How did that work? Uh, you know, the West Coast was dominant uh, d- uh, double rubber boots, which is what I had. Uh, and kicker was when we came east, the most of the people in Florida were running running kickers with rubber front bindings, and we were running uh, double Maharaja style rubber bindings. We probably had. Nowhere near the control that we have these days, but we had probably had more control than a lot of the guys on the East Coast who were running the Cypress Gardens bindings, which didn't have, the, you know, they weren't very stiff. Uh, they weren't high wrap at all. So there wasn't a lot of support there. And that obviously that makes it, it made it harder to, to ski, but it also made you be more sensitive to pressure on the ski and with your foot and all that. And I think we've kind of seen some of that come back around again. Uh, these days is we're seeing everybody, a lot of people went to hard shells and then now there's some move back to rubber and maybe you get a touch more feel and you can control the ski with your foot a little bit more. So, you know, there's, I'm kind of jumping around, but in bindings, I I think there's too much control. There's not enough control. And that is not the same for every skier. So it's, it's a, it's an extremely important part of your combination to be a solemn skier. And there's no, that's why you see so many variable combinations on bindings these days. Sure. And we'll probably touch on that a little bit later in this yeah. podcast. Just sure. for a frame of reference from 1967, 
you won the Masters 67, 68, 70, 71, 72, 73, and 77. The technology progression between 67 and 77, like you're saying, now you're getting into a different era of materials. Talk to us a little bit about how the technique changed during that period of time. Yeah, um, actually, I think I, I think I won at six seventy five too. Now I'm thinking back about it, but yeah, no, well, I had seventy five in there too. <laughs> yeah, okay. The uh, you know now we're starting in glass skis, uh, but not carbon skis, fiberglass skis with uh, urethane foam cores, which th- they weren't necessarily better than wood skis by the material. They were better than wood skis because. You could reproduce a bevel and a rocker because it came out of a mold. Uh, the energy transfer that we get from carbon and, and high-density foam these days was is extre- extremely better than the earlier fiberglass skis, which I think the energy transfer was probably similar to wood skis. But you got duplication. You know, if you, if you took two skis out of the mold, they had a similar feel. They had the same bevel package. Uh, there were some variations in rocker, but, you know, it, that's what's that really helped the sport because you got, you could reproduce something that you'd skied on. So, and then we're still doing a lot of modifications. So that changed it, whether you can reproduce it or not, but at least we started with something with much more precise manufacturing than the wood skis we ever, ever had. We talked a little bit about this off air and um, we had Jay Bennett on the podcast not too long ago. And Jay mentioned the bringing a file to the ski. And the first person that popped in my mind was Chris Point. And so I have to ask you, you know, back in during that period of time, it wasn't uncommon where, you know, even even an amateur skier might have multiple skis that they would have been testing or it's not quite turning right. Trying to find that combination, they would bring a piece of sandpaper or a file to the bevel of the ski. Talk us through a little bit about that. I mean, when you were competing during that time, I know you've always been tweaking skis, but were there several different skis, almost like a golf club bag that you could pull out for different conditions or the way you were skiing at the time? Uh, we weren't doing much, too much of that. Uh, that. We did some of that later on in, in the, during the, the heyday of the tour because uh, we had so, so much so variable conditions. We definitely did a lot of hand tuning. And, you know, as I mentioned, it, it, the the duplication in wood skis is not very good. So we'd get one that was a favorite ski. Of the, the one ski, Wood Maharaja, I had a, a one, five of the seven masters I won was on that ski. And it was that, that exact ski. There was something about that particular ski. And we weren't, didn't have the technology to measure, you know, flex patterns and torsional patterns and all that at the time. But there was something about that one ski that was really special. So when you had one that was your favorite, you tended to stay with it. But we were always testing and trying things. But yeah, a lot of sandpaper file, uh, a lot of ruined skis because you can reshape a bevel, but finally the bevel gets keeps getting bigger and bigger as you reshape it, and uh, eventually it gets too big, and then it doesn't work right. Uh, sure. But you know we're talking about relatively inexpensive skis at that time frame, even you know with the differences in inflation and all that, the skis were still relatively inexpensive back then. I think my first Maharaja cost $66. Wow. 1965. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the world record during that time. And I believe I have this date correct, but the first world record was at 1966. That's correct. Yeah. So 1966. And uh, just assuming my dates are correct here, 
uh, you broke the world record in 66, 69, 70, 75, 75 again. And then it's kind of cool because it looks like your brother Bob tied you in 82. And then you came back in 84 and broke the world record again. Yeah, I, I remember the first one and the last one, that, like most things. Uh, the first one was in a tournament Mission Bay in San Diego. Uh, and I, I beat uh, Leroy Burnett, who had won the Masters that year, which was 66. And the week after the Masters, I, we were, uh, there was, my age bracket didn't, wasn't uh, competed, didn't have it at my age bracket, that tournament. So I had his, which was junior boys. So I had his game boys against him and I ended up beating him and he was the Masters champ. And that's what got me into next year's Masters. And then the last one was in a, the first event of the 1984 Pro Tour, which was at McCormick's. And uh, that was the first year that uh, Rob Shirley Mastercraft put that tour together as a tour. And it was the first event of the year, and uh, and everybody was there. And at the end, I, I ran, ran four and a half at 39 and a half. And it uh, stood for record, but not very long. But it, it was a record at the time, so that was a lot of fun. Well, yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because uh, it looks like uh, Bob followed up and, and broke that record that same year. What was it like? You know, you guys have a really special relationship, obviously, being in the ski community, the two dominant figures of that era, uh, being able to trade world uh, trade world records, but also train together. Tell us about that relationship. I think we handled it really well. You know, it can be it can be detrimental. In our case, I think it kept us focused and it made you we were like competing every day, but we knew what the other guy had done, right, in practice. So kept you focused and trying to get a score every day when you went out. I think that's a positive thing. I, I talked to some of the current pros about training with their competitors here the last 10 years or so, and they, they're like, oh, we don't, why would we want to do that? And, I, I, you know, they're going to get all my secrets. And I go, I don't have to get on. You know, I think it's good, good training. And now quite a few of them are training together, more so than they have in a long time, I believe. Uh, I think that's a positive thing. Because again, it keeps you focused, and it kind of keeps you your your pulse on what your competitors are doing, or at least some of your competitors. And I think it's I think it's good. I really do. Yeah, interesting that you say that. We had Sammy Duvall on, um, and he said the same thing. He'd invite his competitors in and train, and that's the reason why he could achieve such a high level. So that seems to be part of the secret sauce. At least if you want to break the world record, let's talk about ski design and. The skis or the speed at which we ski. So men, 36 miles an hour, women, 34 miles an hour. But even in the amateur divisions, really going down to 32 miles an hour. How does that change the way you shape a ski, uh, the length of the ski, the width of the ski, how it turns, how it accelerates? Well, I may be in the minority, but I, I think you can. I think you can make a ski work at, at 34, 36, and even at, at 32. I think you you change the ski needs to get a little bigger, one size up uh, as you go slower, or maybe a little bit stiffer. I mean, you you can stiffness is as you add stiffness, it's like making the ski larger, and as you take stiffness away, it's like making it smaller in in theory. So, I think that uh, I think you can make if it's a good design. I think you can make it, it work at, at at both speeds. If, had quite a few skiers transitioning to 32 here the last four or five years. 
and we're able to run the same design. Maybe we go up a size, maybe we go up in stiffness of touch, start moving, doing things like you run bindings a little further forward. As the speed goes goes down, maybe you, you got some different pin settings. And, but I think I think you can make it work. I really do. I, I again I may be in the minority about that, but I, I think you can you can make that happen. I, I really do. I really do. Yeah, and one of the things, Chris, you know, I've seen you ski at 34, I've seen you ski at 36 and been able to announce for you multiple times. And one of the things, even going back to Pro Tour tapes and other tapes um, from earlier dates that I've always been impressed with your skiing, not only the consistency over a long period of time, but how your style had evolved over the years to kind of fit the new technology. You're one of the very few people out there still skiing today that literally has been through every generation. You know, whether we're talking about generations of engines or skis, uh, cruise control, and and you know as well as anybody else, uh, you know, back skiing in the early 90s is a totally different game than where we're at today. What have you done with your techniques to adjust over the years? Well, the other thing, the other thing that falls into that factor is, is as you get older, you have to, your basically your technique has to improve to maintain a similar level because you're not going to overpower things and and out athleticize things that you maybe did in the past. Also, especially with the advent of zero off the current speed control, you're not going to overpower it as a skier. It's the other way around. It's going to overpower you, and you have to become way more efficient in your body positions than that to take advantage of it. And if you try and overpower it, you're not going to go anywhere and you're going to be a pass off what you could run on perfect pass and probably a pass and a half than what you could run on manual driving. I've heard a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to ski anymore because this, you know, the new speed control is no good or, or whatever. But to me, that's, that's part of the challenge that I've enjoyed is, is adjusting as equipment has changed and adjusting has as as the boats and the speed controls have changed, yeah, it's 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 a it's a constant challenge. And I mean, we all we don't all. I enjoy competing in tournaments against other skiers. Some people don't. That's fine too. But the challenge of making a new ski work, or learning how to ski with a new speed control, or taking advantage of carbon fiber uh, skis that ski completely different than than what someone learned on, that's a challenge that that I think people need to embrace rather than be scared of or be afraid of or or let their ego get in the way of. Because I think what happened, and, and there's the, the advances in equipment, and then there's also how we learn. And how I learned, uh, somewhat unfortunately, I think is, as I mentioned, on, 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 a, on a ski that was relatively flat, very wide in the back, very sharp bevels, very little rocker, and it, it wouldn't stay in the water, and it had a narrow front. So if you got... If you rode the middle of the ski coming in the buoy, you it would stop and you do a front flip. So you had to learn how to stay back. And as soon as it started to turn, you had to move back further to keep it in the water. And that was what you had to do to ride those skis. And and I ski very competitively on those skis. And that's that's good. But now those things that I learned as a young skier uh, are completely opposite of what you need to do today. So I, I make the analogy that you learn your technique in the first three or four years you ski, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to fix everything you learned. That, that's how I feel. I really do. I mean, I'm still, and I, when I watch 
some tapes and out of from way back when I go, man, what are you doing? But that's what you had to do to to make that work. And that's and I think that's one thing that Bob and I, my brother Bob and I both uh, were able to ski for a really long time because we did a lot of testing and development work. So we learned how to ride different equipment and, and what how different equipment likes to be ridden because we learned early on you can't just design skis for yourself. You have to design skis for a lot of that work for a lot of people. And maybe not even work that well for us at the time, but we had to learn to take it uh, to build product that works for people who are skiing today, so it it works for them, and then and they want to buy it. So we learn how. I guess what I'm trying to say is learn how to be very adaptable early on. It it, it helps you stay in a sport and 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 still be able to do something with the current technique and the current boats and the current skis. I, I make one quote to my brother he said well you when you try a new ski by the time you get to the fourth buoy in the first pass you should know what it's going to do and you should be good to go from there there you go there you go that's good advice you <laughs> might disagree with that but uh that's kind of what i'm talking about is you learn how okay you're feeling what the ski likes and you go okay this is what this wants and i'm gonna i'm gonna do my best to do that it may not be your favorite technique or your natural technique but you do it in the short term at least to say okay this is what the ski likes and Maybe if I change this a little bit or something, I could be a little, a little more forgiving for other other the way other people ride it. So that's sure. that's that's part of it. I think that's part of how we've been able to stay involved in sport for for a really long time. <laughs> that's awesome. And 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 what's amazing about your career, you've been a competitor the whole way. I mean, decades of just competing and competing. And as a competitor, I wanted to get your perspective on this, because if you look at the generations, uh, you know, through the 70s, 80s, even 90s, there's a lot of movement from the athlete on the ski to make it do certain things at times. Over the years, due to technology and other reasons and circumstances, it seems like slalom skiing, as far as an athletic movement, has become much more still, which still requires a tremendous amount of body strength to be very still and over the top of the ski. One of the things that I have noticed though, and I've you know put in the competitor hat on is, you never know what the conditions are gonna be on a particular day. And sometimes when you're trying to remain still or over the top of the ski to do technically everything right, you can run into a circumstance in which you do need to get all over your skis just to save the next buoy or to save the pass or to continue on. Um, I was wondering when you look back on it, you know, your consistency, I think probably has a little bit to do with just all the variables that you went over throughout your career, uh, where some of the newer generation, not so much, right? Uh, like maybe they learn great technique three or four years in, very still over the ski, but they go to adverse conditions, not really knowing how to deal with it. Have you made that observation? I just wanted your take. No, I think there's something to that. And then uh, the way that the tour was in the, you know, luckily I was able to participate in the heyday of the tour. Obviously I was past my my peak, but I was still participating. And we're talking, you know, 20 events a year and, and what stood out in those events. And a lot of times the conditions were not very good. And 90% of the time there was no practice and there was no, nobody got the, it was a new site and nobody got to ride it. So 
you show up on a Friday morning at 7.30 in the morning and, and nobody's ever skied on the course before and you had to go out and get a score so you could advance to the next round. Right? And that, that, was, that was the test. And so you got to stay on top of the ski and you, you got to get as many buoys as you can, right? And some of those conditions were not very good. So being doing a lot of testing helped that. And then, and then the tour in those conditions and those sites that we'd never seen before that helped, but standing on the ski really efficiently and being super efficient cross course, like the best guys are doing, guys and gals are doing today, is the way to ski. And they, because they're so efficient, they can deal with adverse conditions pretty well. I mean, it may it may throw them off mentally, but their efficiency lets them deal with adverse conditions. So, I mean, I, I think that you know the top twenty skiers men and women can still ski in some terrible conditions and, and get scores but but the, the, there's something in what you said but they they're as you become more efficient standing on the ski and more balanced you can de- actually deal with more things really like that perspective and it's just kind of an observation over the years of just watching the technique evolve and i'm i feel like i'm in that same boat i wish i could start all over <laughs> and 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 learn how to ski Talk to us about the widths of skis and lengths of skis. It looks like we've seen generations of skis in the past where we thought, well, are we going wider or or is it more about the length? What is the future of the way a ski is shaped? Well, I think that people pay way too much attention to the length because there's no, from a manufacturer's perspective, there's, there's nothing that says, okay, if I build a 67, it's going to be a certain width. You can build a really wide 67, a really narrow 67. And I think that people migrate to the to the length issue because that's something they can see and it says on there it's a 67 or a 66 and but i it kind of pet peeve me when i get to somebody who says well i've 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 never known ride a 67 i always ride 66s and i go well let's pay a little more attention to how wide it is and how much flotation it has and how deep the concave is and how much bevel it has and uh, and all those things that are that determine speed and how high it sits in the water or how deep it sits in the water and whether it'll turn or not, rather than how long it is. I think generally the last seven or eight years, we're seeing a little more width in skis, but the, you know, my ski is one of the wider ones, but as you make a ski wider, you have to counteract that with something that makes it sit in the water correctly. And in my case, I'm a little deeper concave, maybe a little different bevel angle, a little more rocker, Consumers and athletes always want to focus on one thing, whether it's length or how wide it is or what kind of concave it is. It's all about a combination and how those, all those factors, are, which are all very important, how they all fit together. There's no one ski out there that has a completely unique bevel or a completely unique concave. It's the sum of all those pieces and how they fit together with the flex pattern and torsion pattern and the thickness of the ski, all those things end up giving you the net feel. And whether it's a match or it's not a match, but it's it's all those factors, not just one. Yeah, no, I really like the way you said that and sum that up. I mean, even for myself, I think, well, I'm six foot tall. I need to go out and get a 67, 68 inch ski. But what you're telling me is, no, I've got to be paying attention to the buoyancy, uh, the width, the concave, all those things play a factor. And that's, I really wanted to touch on that, on the weight of a ski, because that's not something I think we really know a lot about. We obviously know that some are lighter and some are heavier than others, 
but not necessarily the lightest ski is going to be the best ski if like you say the you know the combination is not right what are you looking for in a weight of a ski when you build them i think this is a misnomer also because the difference between a heavy ski and a light light skis is probably about two pounds in today's marketplace you know you know my skis are running up right just under three pounds with without a fin and probably the heaviest ski on the market is maybe four and a half pounds maybe five pounds when you're trying to accelerate from one side of the course to the other you have to move your mass and the mass of your ski vest and your bindings and the ski and whether the ski is a pound or two heavier or lighter i don't think is really significant but what it is significant is how it reacts and generally people associate a lighter ski being more reactive that doesn't necessarily have to be that way but the the carbon fiber when you bend the ski made out of carbon fiber and then release the pressure it returns to its original shape much quicker than one that doesn't have carbon fiber in it so that's why skis with carbon fiber go from one side of the course faster than the other now carbon fiber is so much stronger than fiberglass that we used to use that we can use very little of it and still get a reasonable flex pattern so to get the right flex pattern with carbon the ski is inherently going to be lighter and then the new the new cores that we're using the syntactic foam cores our pvc foam those are different names for the same thing it's a hard foam that we have to machine with a machine a cnc machine also transfer more energy and and when you put that between the stiffer harder cores and and the carbon fiber surface uh, surfaces the ski's going to be lighter uh, even the heaviest ski is going to be lighter and it, it's going to react quicker because of the carbon not because and, and the course stiffness rather than whether it's a pound or two lighter one way or another so what and then you know i have a bit of a pet peeve because my skis tend to be a little lighter than most and they go well your ski's too light it won't it won't stay in the water well, anything you can do with it, because when the ski's in the water, you're standing on top of it, you know, and, and what's in That's the water true. is yeah. as well as the ski. So, but again, it's kind of like the links, right? It's it's an easy thing to see. Oh, you pick a ski, oh, this ski's light, or oh, this ski's a little heavy. But most of the bindings that are out there today, there's quite a bit of variation in, in the weight of bindings. So it's more variation in the weight of bindings than there is in the weight of skis on the high-end side. But a lot of these bindings are are definitely heavier than the ski itself. So I think I think weight is really kind of a non-factor. It's more of an indicator of how the ski's built, but it doesn't it doesn't relate to how it, whether it's going to be a good ski for you or not. Sure. And just going back to that misnomer about the weight of the ski, I wanted to get your perspective because I think one that has been out there for a long time is the lighter the ski, the worse it's going to ski in choppy water. Is yeah. that kind of along the same lines? No, it's the same thing. That's what I'm saying is it, it the perception is well if it's light then it's going to be it's going to be affected by by waves so it, again the ski is is as it goes through the water is the ski's mass and your mass uh and and it's it, whether it's a pound or two light or heavier doesn't really change anything if you have less carbon fiber maybe you've got a blend or and then your ski starts to get heavier then it's less reactive it's not going to go across course quite as well it doesn't again it still doesn't mean it's going to stay in the water any better yep and i really like the way you talked about bindings too because 
whether you're skiing on a hard shell, two two uh, hard shell boots or rubber boots or a rear kicker, all that plays into the factor of the weight as well, as along with your own body mass. I was going to ask you, you know, we've seen the innovation between wood, honeycomb, fiberglass, carbon fiber. Is there any other materials out there that look promising that could give a better result than carbon fiber? Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. If you look at other sporting good equipment that are looking for deflection and reaction, so golf clubs, tennis rackets. I'm assuming hockey sticks are the same way, but I know for a fact that golf clubs, and and uh, I'm sorry, golf golf clubs and tennis rackets are are carbon fiber. It gives you the the light, the highest strength or the lowest weight, and the the most reactive to you know, put energy into it by bending it, deflecting it, hitting a ball with it, whatever, and then return that that energy that you put into it by how you moved it to create motion of the ball moving across the court or or the or the golf ball moving down the course or ski moving to the other side of the lake. So yeah, there's other materials out there uh, I'm not aware of. It. I mean it there may be, but I mean carbon fibers and airplanes and everything else it's 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 a pretty amazing product let me ask you and this one's kind of out of left field as far as ski design as far as molds are concerned is there any innovation that you can foresee in 3d printing that could give you an advantage that you can't do when you're laying up a ski now well i think the problem with 3d printing is the materials are getting better. They didn't have much strength to start with. I think for using things uh, for accessories, such as uh, maybe a part on a binding or or, or something that, that there's a good, maybe a good place for that. The, the advantage is that the tooling costs are insignificant with 3D printing. Basically, it could be no tooling costs at all. But to get the, re the energy return that we get out of a carbon fiber part, carbon fiber part from what I understand and what I read and what I've, I've talked to some engineers about is there's just no way. And part of what carbon fiber, the way carbon fiber works is the length of the fiber. The longer the fiber is, the more energy it returns. So for the most part, the fibers in a competitive water ski are to go lengthwise from the tip to the tail. So they're 67 inches long. The fibers in the bundles that make up the material. So that's a long piece of carbon that you're trying to stretch or compress. Whereas if you were to chop it up and put it into a 3D printing material, you, there would be no long fiber in there, right? It would be a, it'd be little, little bits and pieces. As far as I know right now, they're not doing 3D printing with, with anything with carbon fiber, but if they did, it would be little bits and it would be nowhere near have the ability to transfer energy like as a, as a, as a piece of carbon cloth does. Very interesting. Very interesting. I never really thought about that carbon fiber going from tip to tail. Yes. Here's a question. This is just, I guess, a case study. Someone comes to you, they want to learn how to ski, and they're going to be dedicated for the next three years, learn the proper technique and everything. Do they? Do you put them on a hard shell binding, or do you put them on a rubber binding? I thought you were going to say rear heel or not, but uh, well, we can um, talk about that too. <laughs> I, I mean, they're just getting entry level in the ski. I think some kind of rubber binding is fine, and I, I believe. Let me, let me back up a little bit. I believe that the, the hard shell release with a spring release 
whether it's reflex or HO or or a good with it with that same style release is the safest binding that's out there. I believe that's the safest binding. You can still injure yourself, but the injuries tend to be quite a bit smaller. I think that the rubber, the high wrap rubber binding, you kind of have the best feel for what's going on. And you know, a couple of our best skiers, the obvious one, it would be Nate Smith and 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 Andy Maple and his heyday both rubber binding proponents. Uh, you get the best feel for what's happening. A little bit more dangerous because you get, come halfway out and you can fall. But we've had there's been some movement, you know, in hard shells basically came out in the early '90s, and when you go to Europe in 2000. 70% of the people in Europe were, were running hard shells and, and 20% of the people in the States are running them. And now it's probably 70%, 80% in the States are running them and 90% in Europe. Uh, again, it is the safest. It does last the longest. I think probably just getting started, to, it started as rubber and then you evolve. You want to evolve to your binding package relatively soon because changing bindings is more difficult than changing skis from right. my perspective. And, and the bigger, the big, probably the bigger question is, do you go kicker in the back or do you go mm-hmm. rear heel? I think it's pretty clear right now. If you're learning, I would probably go kicker. Uh, we didn't learn that way. And I've made a couple of attempts to go back there. I spent one season doing that. And now I've got something kind of halfway in between. We've got a little bit of a heel cup. So it's a kicker, a little bit, just a, like a two inch high heel cup. So I know where I am, but I get, I can have the ability to move my foot around some. I think overall, that's your, your best combination for most people. It also depends from I'm rambling a bit here, but if you're rear foot dominant, you're more likely to run a rear binding with a heel on it. If you're balanced over your front foot, you're more likely to run a kicker. Balanced over your front foot is if you're learning from scratch or or you could pick your exact style, I would go balanced over the front foot and I'd run a kicker. Okay. There it is. Well, Chris, I wanted to ask you this question. I mean, over a career that's expanded for a long period of time, when you look back I mean, this is going to be a tough question. What is maybe the 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 best win you've ever had, or your favorite memory? Uh, well, I think I think it, you're early and you're early and you're late. Things tend to stand out. I mean, I mean, when I went to the Masters of fourteen and one, I mean, that was a spectacular feeling. My last full pro tournament in '92 in the same site in San Diego where I took the world record and I beat Andy, Andy in the final. That was, that stood out, right? It, it really did. You know, I don't know. The, you know, the last world record I set, that was, that was pretty special. So I'm not answering your question very well. Uh, well, I figured there would be a bunch of them. It's a tough question. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I think that, I think that sometimes, I think my, to be, I'll use the word for life a better term. Being relevant in the sport for as long as I have been is it may be my biggest accomplishment. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, hey, once you're past your prime, you stuck around the sport too long and you should have got out, retired. A lot of people did. And I respect that. In my case, I prefer to stay involved and compete. And even if I, if I wasn't in a position to win, I stayed in tour for a long time and actually won a couple when I shouldn't have because I'm in the right, right place at the right time. But I always enjoyed competing and I always enjoyed trying to learn to get better. And I, I think that's why I stayed, stayed involved for so long. And, I, and I, I think that's probably, if I had to say one thing is that I was relevant for 
you know, I guess I set my record when I was 13 and, and, uh, I ran, I ran 39 and a half in a record tournament at 51 years old at a pro record tournament. That was the last time I ran 39 at, at 36. And, uh, that's a long time, it's a long time. And then, you know, now I won senior worlds a couple of years ago and that's those, that's a whole different game. That's, that's a lot of fun because it's people who are, just loving the fact that they're still water skiing and, and their whole perspective is different, right? It's like, hey, look at this. I'm 60 or 70 or 55, and I can still compete in, at, a, at, a, at a world championship. How cool is this? You know, yeah, so I that's think awesome. That's very cool. I wanted and to get I, your, your your perspective on that. I just want to pause right there because making the switch from 36 to 34, you've had success at both speeds. But... 39 and a half off is a different pass at 36 than it is 34. And um, I just dropped down in the last two years to go into men three. And I was very surprised. Uh, there was some things I could get away with at 34 that I could never get away with at 36, but it was a completely different game at short line. I just wondered if you could speak to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. It, and, you know, I see that. I skied at 36 for, I figured out the other day, I skied there for 44 years. So when I first tried to run 34, it was a real challenge for me because I, I would, I would come up short and, and I, and I, I was overturning and, you know, and, and you got to learn the rhythm and the rhythm is different. You have to, you have to accelerate a little longer and ride out a little further before you swing. And I, when I watch the guys that quite, quite a few of the, uh, Open men type guys will train with us at our site. Uh, I mean, Will Asher, Chris Parrish, Cole McCormick, of course. Uh, so I get to watch those guys quite a bit, and, and they're able to stop the acceleration so much earlier because they've already built enough momentum to get out the buoy line and swing, right? And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for sure. It's a different timing. And I always found when I first went to thirty four that. I was always way better off if I made a mistake early in the course and got late like a bad mistake and then i went into this complete scramble mode because then it was more like 36 so i was getting the buoys with more speed and more more energy and more then i could make actually make 34 work better for me than than i than if i was on time because i had a hard time getting that rhythm organized uh but yeah it's different and i think that it's not as much difference buoy counts not as much different as, as i i think people think it's going to be i think it's between 36 and 34, it's between three and four buoys difference. I hear people say it's all oh, it's a pass. I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I think once you get used to the difference, and when your first time you go down, you go, oh, I'm going to kill this. And then, and then after a while, you realize that, no, it's not as, I'm not running as many more buoys as I thought. Now, you can make more mistakes for sure and get away with it. But at, at, the, at your top pass, whatever that top pass is, it's definitely less than a pass difference. I did a lot of, when I was doing both for quite a while, I skied, trained a lot at 35 miles an hour, and then I could go up up a mile or down a mile, depending on where I was going to compete. I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the 35 mile an hour. Is it, is it, you get that freedom that you get at 36, like you get free easier, but the buoys don't go by quite as fast. So yeah, yeah. At 35. And I, I, I encourage that for, I mean, if you're getting ready to go to a tournament, you don't want to be skiing at the wrong speeds, but training at other speeds is, I think that there's something to be learned about that. Uh, I think it's, uh, I think that's, I think that's good. And the way zero off is, we can pick it by a tenth of a mile an hour, so we can go any speed we want, right? So yeah, there's something to that. 
Very interesting. Well, I wanted to ask you about when you were inducted into the Hall of Fame, the Water Ski Hall of Fame back in 2008. I pulled up some old videos on YouTube um, talking about those interviews, and it was kind of the same as it is now, but in 2008. So a while ago, where <laughs> yeah. we were talking about your career, you're still relevant, you're still hanging, hanging in there, still competing, trying to bounce back. What does it feel like going into 2023? I know you're ready to go. You think you're over these injuries. I mean, I would just think that you're just so happy to still be in the game. And then now, and we're about ready to talk about LaPointe ski brand. I mean, you're making some big moves. And the the more I pull up social media, I start to see your ski more and more out in the marketplace. Things seem to be very alive right now. Well, they really are. And I, I, uh, it's been very exciting for me. Uh, and I think that the way I'm looking at that is uh, I want to compete and I'm competitive. That's great. And if I'm not, if I'm not competitive in my group, I might ski less in tournaments, but I, I don't know whether my ego can handle that or not. But I want to I want to always train because the best way to develop product is to ride it and then watch other people ride it and then ride it myself and make a change and see what I feel and then have other people ride it. And so I need to stay on the water to to do the best job to build the best product for people riding my skis. So that's my intention. I'm going to be, I hate to say the word, but I'm going to be 70 in uh, January. So it doesn't get easier. Spend a lot of time off the water trying to to be ready and to at least be able to, uh, again, do a lot of training and, and, and develop skis. Well, that's incredible, Chris. Well, I'm definitely going to be cheering for you going into this next year, and I hope you're healed up. You're, I was on your website earlier. The LaPointe Ski brand is out there bunch of skiers out there skiing on them i wanted to give you a handoff to where people could find you find your ski maybe even come ski with you yeah sure i mean uh our website is uh, lapointskis.com uh so that's not too hard to remember and our ski lake is called lapointe ski park we don't have a lot of uh imaginative named names and we're in orlando and we do uh we're a club and we do some training with athletes and my best case scenario is somebody's interested in a ski to have them come to me and let me watch and, and get you on the water for two or three sets. And then we're going to know right away whether my ski is a match for that skier or not. It, and, and my success rate is way better if I can see them. And I've got like three or four different combinations that I have depending upon how somebody stands on a ski. Even when you know people tell me how they ride a ski and then when I watch it, it's not always the same. So it's always best if I can get in front of people. I intend to to be on the road more this next summer, probably six weeks in the U.S. and six weeks in Europe and going around and uh, doing some clinics and but mainly trying to get out in front of people and let people give the ski a shot and, again, see whether it's a match because that's what it's about. There's no there's no best ski for every skier out there. It's you got to find a ski that works for you with a tune-up on that ski that works for you. And I've had, obviously, a fair amount of experience making a ski optimizing a ski for each for an individual and if it's not the right set not the right ski or not the good match it's not a good match but if i got two or three sets i can i can get to a close a place that's really close to somebody and they can just say yeah this is something that's going to work for me or no it's not you know and that's all good well i wanted to tell our listeners it's been a long time since i've been have had the opportunity to ski with you but everything you're saying is absolutely true it's amazing uh, that you can ride in the boat, watch somebody ski, go back, maybe even tinker with the fin. And now that you have your own ski to see that combination, Chris, 
That's so exciting. And we're going to be cheering for you. So um, I'm going to encourage our listeners, hopefully, uh, not only to check out the ski, but to get somewhere where you're having a clinic or even down to Orlando to go ski with you. And I think they would be super stoked to do it. And we're so excited that you were able to join us on the podcast today. And we'll have to do this again. All right, Evie. Hey, I really appreciate uh, you always do such a nice job with your announcing and, the, and this interview format and uh, makes it very easy and everybody enjoys it. Well, thank it. you, Chris. Yeah, that means a lot coming from you. And I guess until next time, we're signing off. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and come back for future episodes of the Hit It Podcast as we catch up with current stars and legends of the sport. Thanks again to our sponsor, Visit Central Florida, and don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate this podcast. We'll see you next time.